To ship, of course. It's that time again to talk about release engineering, DevOps, and everything in between. Welcome to the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, SoberBuildEng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me on our last single-digit episode number? Uh, this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter, where uh, I'm asynchronous for life. This is Seth I'm at CheesePlus on Twitter. This is Sasha Bates. I'm Sasha underscore D at Twitter. How's everyone doing this evening? Good. Doing all right. How about you, Paul? How, how, how are you doing? Uh, I am a bad San Franciscan knight. I uh, should be watching the World Series, so I have it open in a tab, and apparently Detroit is one hit ahead or something. That's baseball, right? It is baseball. I, actually, I, I uh, this is, uh, what, pro baseball or something? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but since I live here, you have to like show the, the October orange, as they call it. So well, all of these words mean nothing to me. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to is. say, part of me kind of wants them to lose, and I only say that because I want them to come back here and then win here, because then it's like super crazy. But we'll see. We'll see. If you hear me scream in the middle of the episode, it's because they did something. I don't know. <laughs> so for this episode, we're uh, going to be talking with James Creasy from Perforce on the problems faced by the enterprise Git architect. Uh, which is a term that that uh, they coined, and they're going to tell us what that means, and and we're going to be talking about that, and also some uh, other trends in version control, and that's coming up. But of course, first off is uh, news and views, and we'll start this week with Amazon had yet another outage last week in their east. U- what is it? What do they call it? U.S. East One Zone. Um, I'm sure you guys heard about that. There was a lot of, a lot it's, of practic- buzz. it's practically a, it's practically a curse at this point for that per- you know that that quarterly particular- outage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's going to happen. Yeah, it it's uh, it was uh, they they posted their uh, their summary. Uh, I guess it, see that October twenty second was when it when it hit the the region. I I actually saw a blog post that was talking about a number of people on the infrastructure actually noted they had monitoring that went off before Amazon kind of blew up, so they noticed degraded performance and in, in their own metrics, which I thought was kind of interesting. I saw that article, actually. I, th- I thought it would be interesting to see if that's, that was the case. I think it was the Boundary blog, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, we'll we'll uh, post a, a link in the show notes. We'll dig it up. Well, it's, it's, Im- it's impressive to see how many, how many other institutions went down. I mean, we actually use Boundary, uh, and it, was, it affected a lot of random services that we made use of. I think uh, Agile Zen uh, went down, which is a Kanban service. Um, so a lot of the things that a lot of people depend on for their day-to-day were not diversified properly, and so it impacted not just not just people who hosted services or consume services, uh, you know, primarily on those, but affected a lot of like uh, corollary people as well. So it was yeah. uh, uh, cool. I, while this was all going on, we were t- I was talking with a friend about this, and it was it, it was funny because he was saying, you know, we've gotten Amazon has just become such a part of the infrastructure of so many places it's kind of like the power company he was saying it's like you know nobody even really calls to complain when the power goes out because it'll come back when it comes back and complaining isn't really going to get you anywhere so of course people talk about it on twitter but as it's going on it's like well you're down and oh well well it's funny we didn't actually notice we knew we were having problems and we didn't realize that it might be an amazon problem we just figured that we were having problems so i'm not we use it for dev mostly anyway, so it's not systems critical for us, but we, we were impacted by the RDS slowness and a few other things, but we just kind of thought it was, you know, flavor of the day kind of stuff. Did, did you feel better once you realized it wasn't, it was, there was actually an outage? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tough to say. Mostly it was anecdotal, right? Our devs were like, RDS is kind of slow, and we're like, well, yeah, but it's never exactly fast. <laughs> yeah, you know. But I don't, not that I want to blame that on Amazon necessarily. It, it could be what we put into there, which you don't want to know. Well, yeah. well Paul actually asked me, I remember, uh, he said, hey, are you having any Amazon troubles today? And my, my response, which I felt very comfortable, was like, no, we have our own colo. So I was like, oh, no, I, I totally didn't notice. No, I noticed the other services, but it's really nice to be like, oh, no, I have a colo that I know if something's broken there, but I don't have to kind of wonder and I will wait till Amazon comes out with a, hey, this is what happened. I was kind of a jerk on Twitter. I was like, well, I just placed an order for some Amazon books, and that worked fine. So, <laughs> well, the outage was going on. So, See, looking at diversifying and things, not just because of, of resiliency, but 
that's definitely a big part. Speaking of things that are we're having issues, it looks like Apple removed Java from OS X uh, with their latest update. Now, the article actually did it. Did you guys get this update? For, for uh, the Apple removed it from ten uh, seven. Who installs updates? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I might it, break something. Are you kidding? I was, I was actually, I was legitimately affected by this. Uh, uh, to get into our, so we use remote access. So for Dell, it's DRAC or IPMI, whatever you want to call it, but just kind of like, you know, uh, baseband management of, of servers. It, it relies on Java. And I had installed the update. And then as soon as I, I needed to get into a ser- the server was, you know, complaining and I went to go get into it. And then I found out I have to like go obtain Java myself. And it was, it was kind of a hassle. That said, I think they had some legitimate issues for removing it. And to be fair, a lot of uh, Linux distros don't include Java for licensing issues. And I don't think Windows bundles Java either. So I think the kind of furor over, oh my God, Apple removed Java isn't in itself so bad. I think j- the Java being a, a vulnerability as it is, is bad. So I don't well, think... Let me ask you this, because where I was going with it, I actually didn't get the update either, or I haven't, I haven't noticed. Was it just the plugin, or was it the entire JRE, JDK, everything that so got removed. The it it for me, I couldn't do any any Java. It's they uh, they said they just removed the Java plugin from all OS ten browsers, but I Java WS from the wait console, what? What, the, what what do you mean all OS ten browsers? Just Safari? Well, no, they probably removed. Like if you had it installed and Firefox or Chrome were able to see it, they probably removed it because yeah. Well, so what I find interesting about this is, um, it's not surprising, Oracle's track record of dealing with these security issues has been pretty bad, unfortunately, lately. And, I mean, this is bad for Java, right? Because, at, to your point, Seth, what operating system in use today ships with Java now? Like, right. none of them. And that's exactly. Oracle's own fault for not kind of stepping up and being more proactive about these things when they come out. Uh, but it's kind of sad because, it, uh, you know, it... Well, we, we all rely on, I mean, a lot of us do rely on Java at some point, even if we do or don't like it, um, we still need it. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of a, you know, it's, 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 a, it, it's hard for us in OS manufacturing. I mean, I understand, like, you know, Linux distros are like, it's, we don't, the license is such that we want you to install it yourself. That, you know, that is, that is their position. Windows, I don't, not sure why Windows does or doesn't include it. Uh, I don't know what their specific policy is. Um, OS Ten has just kind of put it there. So I don't think it's so bad. Windows, Windows is like, what's Java? <laughs> yeah. What is this Java use? We have the .NET stuff, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sasha, you pointed us at a, a tweet. Uh, well, it was an article that started with a tweet about there is no such thing as a quote-unquote DevOps team. And there was a discussion on uh, who, uh, that's the continuous delivery blog? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, tell, right tell us about that. <laughs> right on. Uh, so it was actually a, a blog post by Jez Humble who was talking about he's starting to hear some disturbing uh, disturbance in the forest, basically, of larger companies putting together what they call a DevOps team, which makes him head desk because he's like, you don't get it! Uh, when what, what really needs to happen is that everybody needs to be doing almost everything and you don't get a bunch of people in who are specialized or especially dedicated to something specific, which in the sense of DevOps, would be nonsensical, really. Well, so I I read this article, and the thing that I, that kind of stood out with me is, is, I mean, I understand his point, but when you have a large organization, it makes sense to me that the way they would approach it is, well, we need people that are specialized in this area, and I understand the kind of cross-functional part of DevOps, and that's kind of the point. But when I read the article, the question I was left thinking is, well, does that mean you want every developer to be an expert in code line management? Do you want every developer to be an expert in the intricacies of Chef on Windows or, you know, whatever weird specialties that we all bring to the table in our, in our roles? Are, is, is he saying, well, every, every developer should have that specialty? Well, well no. So, it, so, the last, so the last part of his article, so, he, so it's, I, I, you know, to, to be fair, he says, okay, so I lied that there's no such thing. It is a. It is about creating an environment. You you can't you can't slap a coat of paint on on a team and say this is now the DevOps team, and they do something. For me, it's I've actually been in this position when I've been called a release engineer, and it was the the DevOps. It doesn't have to be a team, but it is the kind of 
you are having a team that is building the platform that mediates between your operations and your development teams. You can't just call it a DevOps team and expect it to be, you know, kind of embody the ideas of DevOps. It's not, that's not how you do it. It has to be a, a holistic understanding between the development team and the operations team and whoever may be that, that kind of like middleware between the two. If there is any, maybe it's somebody on the ops team who is a liaison to the dev team. Maybe it's somebody on the dev team, at least in my experience, who's a liaison with the ops team. So it's about providing glue, but not about, you know, taking a team and just labeling it as DevOps, because that doesn't, that, that does not a DevOps make. Well, and interestingly, if you, if you read some of the comments, uh, at least one guy tried to explain what he thought a DevOps team was, and what I read when I read his little description was, dude, you just slapped a coat of paint on your production support team and called them DevOps. Right. And if you tried to do that to me, I would, I would leave you so fast, your head would spin. Well, I find there's, there's a good one of the, the first, like the, the highest rated comments is, I don't think it's DevOps, but a release management group that owns end-to-end delivery and drags Dev and Ops into the same room. And that's been my experience is that it's been as a release engineer where I grab the dev and I grab the ops person and say, you two will play nice with each other and I will make sure you play nice with each other. You let can't... me help you. Please yes. let me help yes. you make nice stuff, right? So, so is this another thing where you know, people are uh, abusing um, kind of like the whole agile scrum term? And is In a this... lot of ways, I think so. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. I think the other problem is that we have startups versus enterprise, right? And all the stuff in between. And what right. works in a startup uh, cannot translate in a pure fashion to enterprise because the scale is, is not always, it, it's not a one-to-one scaling thing. Right. That's, and that's, part, that's part of the problem there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. In some sense, it's kind of like, it was interesting that when you mentioned the, the Agile Scrum thing, Yusuf, because it is, you it, you see businesses wanting what a lot of the, the DevOps people are, are hyping as benefits about DevOps. Uh, and I don't mean hyping in a bad way, but I mean emphasizing uh, what are the benefits of DevOps, right? And they're trying to wrap their mind around it. And the fact that they are creating a team that is supposed to, you know, I could totally see, especially in a bigger environment where you have a quote-unquote DevOps team who are those people that actually float to the, all the different teams and they're in the, those individual developer team scrums and then they come back together and they, they talk about what, uh, what service they're building to, to offer the, the, and support the engineering teams. But they're doing that as a team of people. It's like, I, I don't know whether why it's worth getting so hung up when really, I mean, I think that model can work just fine or it can be a horrible failure, but all of that has to do with culture and, and all of these other aspects that are part of the DevOps, you know, movement. Well, that's, that's why a lot of times when you hear people talk about DevOps, they say it's, it, is a, it is a cultural thing. It's not, you can't just make a DevOps team and have all of your culture problems fixed. Right. It is, you can have a DevOps team, and I've, I've been in places where we do have a team, and it is the DevOps team, but it's understood what our role is as a, as a culture. It's, it's understood, so it's not, it's not a problem. But I've also been other places where, like, we're going to create this new DevOps team. They're going to fix all of our problems, but they're, they're just DevOps in name, name only. They may be, you know, they're not, uh, the, the organizational culture doesn't allow the DevOps team to be what it needs to be in that particular organization. So it always matters more how it's, how it's dealt with internally as opposed to what you're just calling the group. Right, and I think we should be talking about that as opposed to what we call if it's called the DevOps team. Right, it's like I think I think I think in the article he makes a lot of good points because he has to say no, it is bad. You shouldn't just call it this. At the same yeah. time, it's okay to call it this if if you're doing it right, it's okay. But yeah. most people aren't doing it right. He does bring up an interesting uh, term that I actually really liked. I called it risk management theater. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Well, I forgot about that. Yeah, and I really like that because cause I've seen some places where – and by the way, I mean I think – I actually think most risk management stuff does tend to be risk management theater. It's let's check off the right checkboxes on the right form to get people to just do what I want them to do. And I think that's bad. The way he describes it, it's like there are good valid reasons to actually have – risk management analysis of a particular project or change management analysis that, that feeds into sort of risk management. But I, I totally, I mean, I've, I've been in environments where, you know, we all have the form because someone, you know, the forms and the paperwork and the spreadsheets and whatever, and everyone just fills those out because they want to cover their ass. Well, 
Well, sometimes you don't. They don't actually want to do the risk management, you know. I mean, so in some in some environments, I mean, he mentions like Sarbanes Oxley, PSI DSS. I've been in university environments where it isn't isn't just a checklist. It, it's a it's a federal regulation, and so your ass is really on the line. Right. Um, and you, you, the option, even though it is a checklist, if you don't do it, you could you can be legally liable, or your team can be legally liable. So sometimes it's it is very very important and very germane to you know whatever your your team's responsibilities are, and not all the time, but a lot. Yeah. Well, that's actually a good seg into uh, our our main uh, topic discussion tonight. An interview with uh, James Creasy uh, on the problems faced by the enterprise Git architect. And we'll talk about that when we return here on the ship show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm Paul Reed, and I'm here today with James Creasy, uh, Perforce's Director of Product Technology. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much. So why don't we start a little bit, for for people that aren't in the know about Perforce, why don't you give me a little bit of of, uh, history about the company and and, uh, the tool? Sure. Well, we were founded in uh, 1995. We've been uh, profitable and growing, and we provide version control SCM tools to a lot of the major corporations. Uh, you can look on our website, get a list, a customer list. There'll be many, many names you recognize. We have a lot of exposure in the games market. Uh, I think uh, uh, many of the major games that you've played have been developed with Perforce, and but we're not particularly the most visible tool because it's the developer's tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and typically by the time it reaches the consumer market, there's there's no visibility of our product. So I think that's a great question to say, you know, what does Perforce do? Because even though it really has driven a lot of software, and in fact, um, a lot of people are familiar with Mark Andreessen's uh, essay about software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Well, the software that's eating the world has largely been developed using Perforce. Really? Uh, he lists several customers there. And I can't say exactly which ones are Perforce customers, but most of those are, are but customers. But ones yes. we'd all know, yeah. Exactly. Now, I know, and I, I'm pretty sure this is this is public, Pixar is mm-hmm. uses Perforce to version movies. So Perforce is used to version things that you wouldn't, you know, most uh, software engineers might not even think they version that stuff, but they do. Right, and in fact, that's a that's a really interesting example because every single element that went into Toy Story three, every sound, every picture, every pic, uh, um, uh, piece of program, all versions stored in Force. Well, well, and and then there are, there are other cases where things are being you know. Artifacts are being version that isn't just source code. So, Perforce right. does more than source code. <laughs> right, exactly, and that's uh, and that's something that we discovered recently in a survey to our customers that many people use uh, Perforce to version their documentation. Of course, and that helped to shape the version everything uh, initiative because we realized that uh, you know what is version? It's understanding the relationships between the things that you care about and providing a single interface to discover the relationships. And so, if you have documentation, it has a a dependency or a, or a relationship to the code, and so therefore, if you version it all together, if you version everything, you're able to discover and fix problems you would have a hard time otherwise. Well, so I actually want to talk about the version everything initiative later because I think that's a really interesting. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that. But one of the things we, you know, you have been working a lot on is the challenges faced by the Git enterprise architects. So people that are trying to kind of map Git into the enterprise space and map uses of it. And that's been something you've been focused on. And then also, very recently, Git Fusion came out. That was the, the big announcement a couple weeks ago. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that and, and sort of you've been focused on that heads down. So, so tell us kind of what that's all about. Sure. So, um, so you know, going back, one of the things that my group does is to look outside perforce at the flow of technology that rushes past us. And of course, we keep an eye on what's going on in our in our uh, space. And Git's been around for a while. We've been kind of watching it. Uh, there was initial speculation as to whether would get en- would it enter the enterprise. It seemed like kind of an awkward fit for the enterprise. But uh, last year, we started to see that it was really showing up, and that it was becoming a requirement in enterprise software development shops. And so, real quickly, out of curiosity, I mean, from the surveys you've done and the things that you, you, you know, customers you interact with, where did you see that being driven from? Did you see that more bottom-up kind of people adopting Git, or were enterprises looking at Git versus whatever they were currently using? 
Did you see more grassroots or? Yeah, well, so there's a little bit of both. And in fact, uh, there's, I'll have a new blog post coming out called The Five Phases of Git Enterprise Adoption. Mm -hmm. And it actually kind of spells out you know, what we've seen as a pattern that's emerged over and over in companies. And it's probably most of the grassroots. And typically what will happen is developers start using the tool, often in open source context. GitHub has been you know, instrumental in, in spreading the popularity of Git. And then they'll want to take it into work because it, it empowers their development in certain ways. They'll start using it at work. They might export assets to their uh, personal Git repository. And at some point, IT becomes aware of this. And uh, they, they get the memo. Right. And <laughs> yeah. at that point, you know, a, a bit of a fight may ensue because they want to keep using this tool and, and you know, their administrators may have reservations about it. And so what happens is the way that it gets traction is that often very influential vocal developers will actually kind of carry this torch up the chain until they get satisfaction from management. We do also see some, you know, the CTO or CIO reads an article about how DBCS is the, is the new standard, and so they, they also may say, well, we're going to standardize on this. But it's probably mostly, mostly the other developers really kind of carrying the flag for it. And, and so Git Fusion was really your team looking at that kind of what's going on and trying to come up with, well, how do we integrate with that and how do we how do we make those people as effective as in there and that what they want to be doing, right? So Right. So so you know one of the things that, that I really try to look at is things from the point of view of the people that are having these problems. So I really study you know the problems, the issues, the technology. And so what we wanted to do is, you know, working with Git in an enterprise environment, what could we do at Perforce to, to add value to that, you know, to basically make it a better experience for everyone. And Git Fusion came out of that to fill that need. So let's talk a little bit about Git Fusion. I mean, how's it work? I mean, what, what, what if I were to sit down with Git Fusion uh, and I'm a company that's using a Perforce shop, like what, what's, what's the use experience? And sure, well, I think this, this is one of the most interesting things about it because you can almost think of Git Fusion as an implementation of Git. In the words of Don Marty, our uh, uh, technical marketing manager here at Perforce, because to a Git repo, it looks just like another Git repo. But it's a Git repo that do things that no other Git repo can do. And it isn't, you know, merely because we can do it. It's because some of the things that people need to do in enterprise development environments require the special capabilities. And you know, often you get people that are very knowledgeable at Git saying, well, hey, you know, I don't really have a problem with using Git. And then if you ask them how many people they're using it with, you know, under a threshold of about 20 people, there's, it's really it's a perfectly fine tool. And, you know, that's a, you know, Force has a free 2020 license. You know, that, that's definitely a, an important part of the, of the market, but it's not really the market we address. We really address these very huge, vertically scalable, multi-site types of installations. And there the challenges are really different. And so that, that is where you'll see Git Fusion, I think, adding the most value. And so also, too, you, you see, you know, there's a threshold there with very specific use cases. So if it's, it's all C and header files or all source code, and that scale is kind of fine, right? But then when you start having to throw third-party blobs in there for whatever reason to track that stuff for reporting requirements or whatever, that's where Git, you know, can be from a scalability part. Yeah, and, and scalability is kind of a, you know, kind of a hot a big, term with this data. because it means different things. It means <laughs> right. different things, right? Because if you think about, you know, everybody knows GitHub scale because they have uh, millions of repositories and developers. But I think I read something that the average number of developers per repository was something like one and a half. So that's, I would consider that sort of a horizontal scaling. You know, in, in enterprise shops, you can have thousands of people working on the same thing. Yeah. So it happens. Yeah. yeah. And so even if it's smaller files, you know, one of the things about Git is that the repos grow and performance can uh, slowly degrade. Now, typical on typical projects, and I would say like the Linux kernel is a smaller project, judging you know from what a lot a lot of our customers are doing. You don't even need to have the large binaries to to start to feel some of these effects. But I think it's uh, you know certainly with the game industry or uh, in enterprise environments like you're saying, you might want to version manager binaries of different types. They want to do this right, so you know their their Git runs into some scalability issues. So again, it's the same story. Some people will run into it. Some people won't. We're really targeting the people that you know that have this real need. And I, I want to talk a little bit about this because we were we were uh, talking right before the show about what what it is about you know the developers just love Git. They love that experience. They love. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But but really, Git Fusion is about supporting that and helping to make that experience flourish in environments that aren't GitHub and aren't you know your own local kind of Git or Git bridge that 
that may break a lot or you have the corner cases not work. Right? Sure, so, sure. So let's talk a little bit of, uh, first about the, the usage. What, you, know, what, you spend a lot of time doing surveys and talking to developers and what, what, what do you think it is about Git that I hear a lot of times people say Git is just more fun or I feel more productive but you know, the keyword there is feel. It's not like they're doing metrics. Uh, but certainly that's very real to, to the developer, right? So mm -hmm. what do you... Well, you know, my first reaction is, is some, to some extent that's an interesting question, but it's not an important one because developers have voted for Git by the millions. And so clearly that's something you know, we need to respond to. Right. Now if we're going to, you know, then it's interesting to think, well, why is that? And I think that's, that, if I understand that's yeah. the question yeah. you're posing. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, kind of the, the happy answer is that version management is fun because what Git does is it adds the power of versioning to your local workspace, which previously was just a dumping place for files from the centralized version control system. Now you get all these great things. You could do branching, you could do merging, and it turns out that when you have a tool that does these efficiently for a developer, it's really fun, and it actually makes you more productive. So I think that's part of the appeal. I also think that there's an appeal that really is, is uh, close, you know, my 30 years of programming computers, uh, there's a joy in writing these very carefully crafted constructions in order to do very specific things. There's a general joy of programming. I think a lot of developers under, understand this, you know. And I think Git gives me some of that same feeling, that it's like exploring this really interesting uh, cave or a mindset. And it's like sort of really sort of learning about it and then, you know, having empower your work. So that, that's kind of a philosophical answer. But, right. Uh, but that's how, I, that's how I see it. And then you get, you of course, do that all on your own. You don't have to get permission from a lot of the blog posts you see are the, you know the SCM gods and the robes right and and that's uh, that's actually my background right is being on that team that's like no you can't branch for the one bug uh, or whatever it may be and that's kind of back to you know the Git Fusion part it's like supporting developers that that want the flexibility and ability to do that but also supporting the people that may have a multi-site, multi-phase deploy process, and there's a reason those people have the process in place for that, because it's, it's complicated. It's not tarring something up and posting it on a website right, or something. Right, right. Like and, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, reminds me of that, uh, the synergist relationship between DBCS and a system like Perforce. Well, so you, you actually wrote a blog post about this, the, the famous Reese's Peanut Butter Cup blog post. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it's a funny read, but, and that post was, was a while ago. I, I, mean, wrote, you, I wrote that in July or June of 2011. Yeah, so I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, you've been sort of thinking about for a long time about how can we make this work for yeah. both use cases. Yeah, and that, that, and that actually was really kind of my thinking come out in a blog post. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that we were pursuing necessarily yet. So it was really, you know, looking ahead and just thinking about how technology and people fit together. And that was sort of the natural result of that. And it's been very gratifying to see that basically been validated by what we, the changes we've seen in the industry, not only with us, but with other with other vendors providing Git solutions that really help enable the Git developer right. get the well, experience. And I think, I mean, a couple of the recent blog posts, and, and that one certainly, have taken the tone. I think one of the issues that any tool vendor runs into, and this is hard sometimes, is because the the background of the tool is the, the SCM guides and the robes in, the, in their cave saying, no, you can't do this, or you have to do it this way, or whatever. And and you know they have they have complexities that they're trying to address. So so and again I'm, I come from that school, so I understand that. But sometimes I think developers can have that experience and they ascribe that attitude to the vendor. It's like Perforce is just saying that this is the only way to do version control. Really, starting back at the, at that blog post and some of the ones you're you're actually have been. What was the we're here from. We're we're from Perforce. Oh, the, the newest one. We're we're right. We're from Perforce. And we're here to help, which is a, which is a riff on Ronald Reagan's nine most terrifying words in the English language. Uh, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Right. Because I think it's pretty natural to have that to have that right. reaction, and that that's probably true that, that tool vendors do end up in that being seen in that. Way. Right. And so, but but so, um, but with both of those posts, and, and really the way you're approaching it is like, let's all come to the table. It's like I'm not. We're we're not trying to sell you on this the way we're trying to enable you to do what you want, but. From the flip side, because I mean, I remember in the Reese's post, you were like, "How did you put it? M my centralized is in your decentralized." Oh, you, your got, de you, you got my central. You got your distributed in my centralized. <laughs> right. Centralized in my distributed. Right. There's and a so, reaction on both sides. Right. And so, looking at, 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 there really is a perspective that I think oftentimes, you know, when you have these conversations with people that are happy with Git and they're productive with it and they're using it, but you say things like, "Well, the reason we do it, uh, the reason we version these binary blobs is because." 
if we don't, we get sued out of existence. Like, it's that serious, right? And that's actually kind of one of the things that, one of the backgrounds that you bring, and, and Perforce brings, right, having done this for, you know, 15 years, and, mm -hmm. and right, it, is those, supporting those requirements. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And, and you did a, a, a set of blog posts, actually, there were something like five questions that was part of the Git Fusion stuff, that were you talking about, like five questions that you need to know, and it was like right. who authorized the change, and when was the change made, and that kind of stuff. Sure, but, sure. I think there's been a number of people that have been blogging about it now. It, my emphasis has been on to try to really understand the, the, the challenges that get enterprise architects, and that's, that's a coin we termed, people will typically have all sorts of different job, actual job titles. We're trying to, to talk about it from the perspective of the person whose job it is to make sure that Git operates at scale in their environment, and you know they, they come from different from different angles to try to solve that problem. But they all kind of have the same problem, right? You know, Git's you know Git's secret is that it's sort of less than half of a corporate SCM system. You have to invent something else to go with it. Right. Uh, and well, so to be very clear, when you say scale, you're not talking. GitHub, which people could argue scales, but you're I mean scales because there's lots of repos there. Right. You're actually talking multi-site, you know, yeah. multi-code line in in large files, yeah. like ten, all of that. Ten thousand developers in sites all around the world, you know, all working, you know, eight ten hours a day, checking in code, uh, and all the processes that are built around it. And, and it's uh, it, it really is outside the, you know, the scope of what most people think of in terms of regular development. So I, I would like you to talk a little bit about that because you, you've done a lot of, uh, again, surveys with those sorts of customers. Like, what problems do they bring to you or when they say, oh, we kind of did a Git deployment because some vocal developer brought it up and so we tried it out and this is what we, sure. <laughs> halt, this is what happened sort of thing. What are some of those stories or, or things that you've heard about? Sure. Well, I can't be too specific about it. Of but, course. But. So I have a list of 20 challenges that I think that you'll most get enterprise architects are going to face some or, or maybe even all of them. Uh, so there are things like how do you do shared code? Right? How do you manage shared code? How do you deal with the large binaries? Uh, how do you deal with ever-growing repos? Uh, how do you deal with not being able to obliterate something? So for example, mm. somebody accidentally commits something with some sort of contaminating license and you want to get it out of the repo, right? That's not easy to do. There's no obliterate. And so some of the, there's certain and, classes... And it's possible to do with Git, but it's not, it's, it's not a command. Like, obliterate, by the way, for, is a perforce-specific command that right. allows you to remove files. Right. And, but, and I, it's funny that you mentioned that case, because I've actually done that with Git, but you're right. It's mm -hmm. like the process to do it is multi-step, yeah. validated after, right, yeah. yeah. So um, you're just saying the complexity if somebody does that, and that can happen more commonly where you've got 10,000 developers and not all of them know the licensing rules or whatever, right? That right. case actually becomes more common. Yeah. yeah, I mean, enterprises are kind of terrified that some you know open source license is right. going to actually get in the product, somebody discovers it, and I think there was a, a well-known well, case with Apple, cases. right, yeah. where they had to actually end up open sourcing their code because right. of that. So so there's companies that specialize in this, right? right? But it's it's actually harder in Git because suppose you have two, you have a Git repository that can have this type of license in it, and then and somebody pulls gone, from it, somebody right. else pulls from it. And you know you don't you've it's lost your it. control of yeah over it. So it's a uh, uh, these are sort of things that a Git enterprise architect might want to look at. Yeah, there's sort of if you want to get you know in the five word version repo size, file size, and multi-site. Well, and, and one common pattern I actually have seen with people talking about using Git at, at sort of what they consider scalar, right? Or with clients that I work with is they solve a lot of these problems by well, let's put that module in its re own repo. And let's put the module in. Let's put all the large files in that other repo that we then write a bunch of scripts to cache polls so we can make that right. reasonably fast, right? right? Do you find that happening at, at Enterprise? Sure, you know? sure. Yeah. And, and, and so one of the, one of the phases is that uh, you know, they'll try to enterprise hard and get or they'll you know, start building these scripts. And so in, in, in actually one of the recent blog posts, I presented the problems and I said, you know, what you can sometimes end up with is you're reinventing corporate SCM one script at a time. And often you're taking some of your best developers and taking them off developing code and on to developing a corporate SCS, SCM system around Git. So it's sort of doubly bad in, in and, that respect. And that's when all, I mean, you're basically now, for, for those environments that have that have been using the studies you've done, they've been using Perforce successfully for years, and then they're bolting this other thing on that, that people expect has, developers using it expect has full support from all the teams. There's kind of that other bit 
where because I've heard this too from from co-hosts where they say things like you can use git SVN, you can use git p4, you know the the git command line, but there's no support officially if you screw up your own repo, right? Because you know they'll run a command, they'll get an error message, and then it's right back to the SEM team. They're like, and so that's kind of one of the problems too, right? That that you know you're you're bolting this thing on, you're using sometimes your best developers could be doing other things. Mm -hmm. Right, and and you know it depends. You know every company is is different and works differently in the way that they you know they seek to to advantage this. What what we hope to do is to take what we already know about version management at this kind of scale and you know leverage that to provide a solution where you're not left you know doing it on your own. And of course we charge a little something for it, but but um, we, hope, we hope to provide value. I mean we want to solve real problems and we want to provide real value. So you know any feedback we get is is super helpful to us. So I actually wanted to mention one of the other features that you recently uh, that came out I think in the last uh, the 2012 I want to say release, which is streams because you talked a little bit that I mean streams have to do with kind of sort of the code line management, right? Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that sometimes it's hard to know with Git how to handle that just because if you if you Google Git and topic I want to know about, you're going to get five great in-depth blog posts and they're all going to tell you something different, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like this kind of, everyone has their own best practice. So, uh, I, I, and so streams are trying to help actually code line management kind of, this. these are best practices that you've discovered over many years. So I, talk a little bit about streams right, and right. what it's about and how it can help with, now with Fusion, how that can help. Right. Well, uh, actually earlier this year I reauthored our flagship best practices white paper that to basically add code line management to it based on the work of Streams and Laura Winger who, who uh, was in part responsible for Streams. And you know I'm just kind of speculating here we don't this is not a product roadmap that I know of currently but there's been some speculation that we could maybe provide code lines at scale for Git by matching up repos with Streams because they're kind of similar like a stream is a container that has a bunch of files in it and it moves those files along the stream to its destination. And it may accept content from other streams at, at different times. And a Git repo is kind of a similar thing. It's a construction that says these files belong together for some reason, and its purpose is to move those files along to its final form. And so there seems to be a relationship there, and you know exactly how the details work out. Uh, we haven't gotten quite that far yet. But that might be a way also that we could provide best practices around code line management. So it's interesting that you make that connection between Git as a container of, of content, right, that gets moved around and streams are the same way. I think one of the biggest mental changes, and a lot of people when they say, or, or they're trying to learn Git, and the, they're trying to figure it out, a lot of the response is you have to change your cognitive model of how version control works. And so Git actually, that's kind of its model of, it's a, it's a tree, and each tree of commits and each thing has content, and you can move pointers around, and there's not this sort of stream per se that you would think with subversion, right, where there's a code line. And so that's that's an example where you can actually apply a concept that people are used to, streams, onto something where Git is actually kind of much more sort of mathematically, right. you know, I, sort of, it's a, it's a tree. Yeah, well I should actually say that so there, there's sort of two ways we've seen people model code lines in Git. And one is by using branches within Git, so mm -hmm. name branches, and another is by actually using the Git repos themselves as different code lines. So the or idea is you they clone right. So you so you, yeah, you work on your own private repo, then you push to a repo maybe you share with some other people, and then you push to another repo that's kind of the blessed repo, mm -hmm. right? Or the repository yeah, record, or, right? Yeah. And in force terms, we would say you're pushing from a softer repo to a firmer repo on the tofu scale, which is how code lines are managed. We usually say the softest code lines, the developed code lines, are towards the bottom, and then they push content up into God. the firmer code lines, and eventually you know, the, release, like the release code line would be one of the firmest code lines. Right. I, I misheard that, firmer, not firmware. <laughs> yeah, firmer. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> we, you know, we, we actually talked about this, and uh, we, you know, the last time we were at, uh, we were at some meetup on, and we were talking about kind of the difference between the type of versioning that a tool like Subversioner or Perforce or any centralized system provides versus mercurial, you know, decentralized. In open source, this is kind of the concept of everybody's a peer, so it doesn't matter, is actually kind of core, not only to the way development works, but kind of the ethos of, of the open source sort of thing. But when you are talking about it in a business context, it, it has to be a little different. And so we were talking about, we came up with the, the fact that there's version control that provides history 
versus version control that provides a historical narrative. And they're both important, but they're, they're actually different things. And so in the Git context, because you can reorder history to create a story, that, that is actually something that open source people value. But it's in conflict with history or his actual history, right? And so I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about like how that connects with being able to, to serve both functions, because they're both important. Sure. I actually don't see those as exclusive, because uh, what Perforce would store or subversion is a, what you might think of as a temporal history. It's, it's, the, it's the list of things that happened in time order. Whereas, and I think you made a very nice term, a narrative uh, story about how the code base got to its current state, which is, I think, of value to anyone. I think that what you want is that the history actually forms a type of uh, advanced documentation to the source, and that there's a lot of value in that. So you, you know, hear, well, what's the value of the commit that we've all done, where you, you, know, you, you make a check-in, and then you realize you, you missed a couple files, and so it breaks the build. And then your check-in says, add missing files, right? What's the value of that? And I would say that that actually kind of muddies up the metadata. So creating this creates a, creates a cleaner, more informative history. Now, the interesting thing about it is you can always take this time-based history and turn it into a narrative history, but you can't go the other way around. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason, I think, theoretically, that you couldn't take, uh, take all of the time-based history and then add a narrative layer over it, which refers back to the original history. So you can imagine you could do this in force. Suppose you say you want to squash that command. Well, you squash it, and now your normal history commands don't show it. It shows rebase history. Right. But if you add the you know dash r real flag or something like that, you could see the time-based history. So you could actually get the best of both worlds. And I, and I think that would be useful to people. And yeah, and that and that's certainly again in um, industries where perforce is is really used, and, and that you know those organizations rely on it. I mean, in a legal context where. That, that dash real flag needs to be used in a court to show that something right. happened, right? right? Yeah, and we use the term IP defensibility mm. because what you, you want IP defensibility. So uh, if somebody attacks your IP in terms of wanting to know whether you invented something or whether this violates a patent, you want to have the best tools possible to defend yourself in that lawsuit. Right, and, and you also want to be able to know that, you were talking about the obliterate example, that an official bill didn't get built off of some repo that then got deleted, so that you did actually ship the stuff you weren't supposed to, but there's no record of it now because it, right. it went missing sort of right. thing. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually, so one of the things about Git Fusion is it's part of the version of everything story. Because I imagine Git repos as being, uh, scattering your, your code all over the place, and it's hard to see into those Git repos, right? There's sort of no total view of what's, what's going on inside those repos everywhere. So what Git Fusion does is it gives you that view because it, host files, not repositories. So now you can see your file history. We talked about this at one of the News and Views items for the last show that was talking about, we referenced the post on the generation gap uh, and whether or not there was a generation gap. And the short version is uh, somebody did a blog post about, you know, they downloaded something from GitHub, it blew away all of their user local on their machine when they installed it, just RMRF. And so when they posted the bug report, the answer was, well, I'm managing 300 Git repos and merging 300 merges, ha, sorry, I missed it. And so this person was, was saying, this is a problem. And somebody replied, there's a generation gap here. And what they were trying to say is that with the rise of GitHub and bringing this versioning ability to everyone lowers the barrier entry. It's not the Mozilla project or the Apache project or whatever anymore. And anybody can do whatever they want. They can fork however they want. And, and they're talking about there's a generation gap between kind of old-line open source, and this was just an open source, but you can see that sort of generation gap and sort of even kind of get fusion and how, how organizations have to deal with those. Bring your own device and bring your own version control, right? The people that want that versus people that are just fine with the tool the way it is. So my question is, do you think that there's a generation gap? Do you think that there's, that that is an issue? And do you think, if so, do you think, how do you, how would you resolve that or how do you Sure. Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, there's always a generation gap, right? That's, a, that's why it's a gap. <laughs> but I, I don't see it really applying here because there's people of all ages working in open source, good effect. I think uh, GitHub has opened up source control and coding to more people. And so you're going to get, it's casting a wider net mm -hmm. over possible book. And I think that's good. And there may be some growing pains. There may be, you know, changes that are occurring in software that we need to accommodate, not resist. 
So I think the more people using version control, the more people that are coding, the more people that are working open source, that's all good for the industry. And we should find a way to embrace it and to support these people. So you made a reference a couple times to version everything, and that's been a big thing that Perforce has been trying to tackle, a big kind of concept and idea. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I know you've got um, people hear Perforce and they think Perforce, but you've got a lot of different products that are actually trying to do bring that version everything story to other places. So I know Commons uh, is, is kind of the, the back-end power of Perforce, because it's, it's Perforce on the back-end but it does, it can merge your, your Word files and, and actually do merging like you'd expect. So I think the use case that they said when they released that product was like legal documents and, and other things like that where it's, you want that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story and then a little bit about where you see that going and what, what kind of things are ripe for versioning that would make it my mom's life better. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so the um, version everything story is, is really a good one because if you think about like, I deal a lot with documents now. I write blogs, I write, you know, different types of material. And I used to be a software developer. And when I was a software developer, I could do things like we could work on the same file at the same time, and I wouldn't be concerned about it because I knew I could merge your changes in. But if you and I work on the same Word document together, we don't do that. So what's the first thing that that I have to do if I if we're working on a Word document together and I send you that Word document? My changes doc. One well, or dash my change. No, that's well, what, what people thinking, do, right? right? Well, what I'm thinking of is that as soon as I send that document to you, I have to stop working. Yeah. Right. Now, there's some other ways around it, like a Google Docs or a cloud-based doc, and it does it does make this a little bit easier. But no, it doesn't make cut and paste easier. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah imagine, cut and well, paste. Okay, so imagine, imagine. No, I mean the actual operation of cutting and pasting. Yeah. Is, oh, right, or right, is, right, right, is, yeah. It's like Control C, really. Yeah. I can't right click and cut, right? right. But, but but what's interesting is that uh, imagine you and I were trying to work on a software project together. And we didn't, we couldn't use version control. We had to use the same type of tools that a word, an author, a word author would have to use. Can you imagine what that would be like? So nobody like, codes without version control. Why? Yeah. Because it's just impossible. So you have the same problem occurring with documents. So uh, I've worked with in uh, in uh, some lawsuits as an expert witness before, and so I've worked with lawyers, and I see one thing they'll often do is a whole bunch of them will work on maybe with the expert witness a the same version of the document. And what they'll do is they'll annotate their changes. And they have somebody that they call a merger oh, really? that manually takes all the changes that everybody's made and puts them into one it's document. It's a human merge engine. Yeah, human merge Now imagine we were working on code like that and we had to work on code like that. How awful would that be? How mistake prone would that be? This is exactly the types of mistakes that are occurring right now in documents. So what we've done is we want to take a, versioning, a version management problem that's been solved for one type of documents that is code. And we want to branch it out to other types of documents, PowerPoint, Word, whatever documents people need to uh, collaborate on. You had a funny YouTube video that has the, the talking, now I was going to say the talking bears and it's not, it's just the voices, but the, the deadpan like, mm -hmm. yeah, is that public? Is that, can we link to that? And then now the reason I ask is because it's hilarious. It's that, you know, when you watch it's like everybody is run into that. Yeah, that was from, that was made for the Roadshow. I, I, I don't know if it's public. I can find out. Okay, yeah. No, that'd be, it, I just remember it's like, no, we sent them the purchase order dash my edits v1 dot yeah. two. Final. Final. Yeah, we've all, so uh, have you found the version everything story has gotten easier to tell with GitHub and the, just that that's coming more into the consciousness anyway, that that having your own ability to do all of these things locally, where it's not just check in, check out with a centralized thing, that that story is easier to tell? Is it starting to click with more people, do you think? Well, the, there's certainly the trend of having more versioning at your disposal, that's good, and I think that the more people that use version management, their, their lives are going to be better. So uh, I think that there's a there's still a gap in terms of people not realizing what powerful tools software developers have. Why SCM is a is a big important industry because you would think well that's not that hard you know to collaborate and but the fact that every single software developer and shop uses version byte and I mean maybe there's people who don't I just don't know how they do it right and so I and so now that I work with documents a lot I don't know how people do it right <laughs> well I can remember the software engineering course that you take in college where it's you do a, a project with a team and it's five people and. I was like, hey, let's use CVS, and the team was like, we don't want to have to deal with that, and it was it was floppies, and it was exactly what you said. It's like, do you have foo.java.dot? 
me and then the date that you wrote it was supposed to be the format everybody agreed on and you picked the right set of fonts. Right? Okay. And that was a team, but, but to your point, that was a team of four people, mm -hmm. right? And it quickly went, you know. Well, this is exactly the workflow that people use with documents. And I think that that's probably not something that software developers can think of. They think of it, it's a totally solved problem, right? But it's, it turns out actually not. Totally solved for that. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? exactly. So, so it's a great opportunity you know, to bring that, bring that capability to more people. One final question. We got asked, how has version control evolved over the last 10 to 15 years? We, we talked a lot about that. But there also is, do you think the focus is more on tools and integration or improving and branch emerging capabilities? And, and, and that's actually a really good kind of uh, trampoline for where do you see, you know, we talked about version everything. Where do you see the trends going five to ten years? I, th I think five years ago, nobody would have seen GitHub, right? They wouldn't have thought of that. That wasn't an enemy. Founders probably thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, Git didn't exist five years ago, did it? Uh, oh, five, right? Uh, was it? Um, we'll look that up. Yeah, we, we, we will look that up. But certainly, it's interesting, right, because you trace that back. BitKeeper was used by the kernel before Linux wrote Git, and there was a falling out between the use of BitKeeper. So, so the ideas aren't new. But it didn't get the traction uh, until, you know, five or six years ago. So, there, and it just caused this tectonic sort of shift. What do you, you spend your day studying this stuff? What do you think the next... Sure, well, that's, that's always the, the best question to right. want to answer because uh, uh, you get on record for what's going to happen five years from now. Well, so everybody's thinking about Git, and uh, somebody used the phrase, Git has sucked all, all the air out of the room for five to ten years, and that's probably true. But... As you say, there's time after that, and what are we going to do there? So this is where the, the peanut butter really cup really comes in, because the peanut butter cup is not just chocolate and peanut butter together. It's something that's supposedly better than either, because of the combination. They come together in a creative collision. The so what's going to happen is that you know Git is one is one side, uh, centralized systems are the other side. I think ultimately you're going to have something that really combines the two in a in a pure hybrid, and then it won't be a hybrid anymore. It'll just be SCM. Because if you think about what Git does, right? it's introduced new tools to a developer. So that could take different forms. So the type of system that can assimilate the best things about Git and the best things about you know, what Git doesn't do is, or, or open source project is, is going to have that next step, I think. And that's when companies, you know, if they've invented kind of their own solution around Git, they'll be sad then because they'll go, oh, well, now we have to start over and do it again. Right. Whereas if you have some sort of central repository record that can support the next you know, next developer hot feature. Now, that's pretty far down the road, I agree. But I think we'll see it. It's interesting. Whenever I kind of talk about this stuff, it seems we have a shift every, I, I kind of call it the Internet generation. So not 20 years, but four years, right? Four or five years. So when I was a senior in whatever school, right, what a freshman, and then, you know, there's a shift between those. those. And so to that point, it's like there is such a focus, and we were talking about this earlier a little bit, on usability in products and cognitive, you know, reducing dissonance. So the thing that when you type a command, it does the thing you expect it to do and you don't have to do the no real flag or no I meant this flag or whatever. And that's been something a lot of people that are switching to Git from any system are confused by. I do think that to that point, we're going to see something where the next generation that graduates from college is going to be, why did you guys use Git rebase-i and these five Shaw one like what? Why would you even write? And it's this sort of everyone that thought GitHub was hot now is the curmudgeon, right? <laughs> you know, um, and and then what will that turn into, right? What will they bolt on top of Git to make it? Right. What will they, and you know, right? Or or uh, I mean, it's, it gets kind of a curious choice to do this because it's such a it was created for such a you know, computer programmer purpose. Yeah. Expanding it into other areas, it seems like an it seems like an awkward choice, and, and you know it may it may be inevitable uh, that it will do that. But I think you're right; it may need to morph a little bit to become a little friendly, mm -hmm. friendlier. Mm -hmm. Well, so I asked you this before. One of the things we always like to do on the ship show when we do interviews is the uh, Behind the Actors Studio, our own version of that interview. Uh, we did it before, and so you've graciously agreed to take our version of the interview, so uh, let's get started. PC or Mac? I use a Mac at home. VI or Emacs? I actually don't use either of those. I use a, 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 an editor that's actually based on VI. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite programming language? I'm going to say JavaScript. Okay. Uh, what's your... What? Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, that, that's, that's the big one these days, right? Um, 
Favorite? What's your favorite uh, program or tool? Program or tool? Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the Mac OS. Okay. What's a tool, program, or language that you'd be happy if it had never been invented? Or least favorite program, tool, or language? Least favorite program, tool. Boy, there's such a big list. Uh, <laughs> any of the single-threaded operating systems? <laughs> so like Windows, Win 16. Waiting for your thing to print because your computer can only be one thing. <laughs> Although, actually, any operating system now, if my machine has eight cores and none of them are listening to me, right. that makes me angry. <laughs> Um, what's a piece of code you're most proud of? I wrote a little engine that's inside the P4 admin project that basically re reverse engineers the server's protections code. Mm -hmm. uh, and the performance protections are particularly uh, uh, gnarly. They can, they can, there's some gotchas in the, yeah. you got to read the documentation. And, and, I, and it actually became kind of a battle between the QA person, who is now a server developer, because he was really vicious at finding things. And he, he found a couple flaws in it, and I rewrote it from scratch. And I didn't hear from him for a while, and finally uh, I asked him, so what about that? And he says, well, I couldn't find anything, and I was pretty mean to it. <laughs> and so I think that's the piece of code that I'm most proud yeah, of. Yeah, well, that's always good when, when they can't find anything. Uh, what's, your, <laughs> what's your favorite curse word? Uh, you know, I kind of cycle through them. I always could, could be anything. What's the current favorite? Uh, you know, I don't curse at work. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I've, my professional training actually is as a musician, and for the last few years I've been painting, and if you're going to dream, it would be to be a painter. And uh, if heaven exists, what famous figure would you like to talk to when you arrive at the pearly gates, and what would you talk about? Probably one of my grandfathers. What would we talk about? I talk about, I have an interesting family history, and I'd like to know about some of the stuff that went on. A little more of the details. Yeah. All right, well, James Creasy, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And we'll be back on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm Paul Reed. For our last segment tonight, uh, Seth is going to be giving us a tool tip on a tool that he mentioned he was using on Twitter and had fallen in love with, and I was like, I don't know what that thing is. So uh, he's going to give us the 411 on it and uh, tell us why he's been using it. So the tool, Tmux. So a lot of people are familiar with Screen. It's a, basically a way you can you know, log into a server, you can start a, a session, that way in case you're disconnected for whatever reason, you can then resume your terminal session at a, you know, at a later time. Or if you have like a long running process, you can just detach from your Screen session and let it continue to run. So a lot of people are familiar with this. problem with Screen is it's old. It's, you know, it's, it's, I think the code was written like 15 years ago. It's been patched up, but somebody came along and took all of the, the problems that Screen had and fixed, I would say, most of them, and the result is Tmux. nice thing about Tmux is it has the concept of both multiple windows and multiple panes with, inside of a window. So if you're familiar with a tool like Cluster SSH, um, which lets you, you know, send commands to multiple machines at once, Tmux gives you this functionality inside of, inside of a window. So you can split, say, five different panes, you can log into in a different server with each one, and then you can then synchronize the text input to all panes. So you're effectively, you know, typing the same commands. This works very well in, you know, you know, situations where you have, you know, identical clusters of machines. And then at any point, if you're running a long-running process, you can detach it. You can rearrange your screens uh, very easily. You can manipulate windows, send commands to different windows. And the best part is it's all scriptable from the command line interface. So anything you can do inside of Tmux you can also do just by, so you could just like pipe commands, you know, with a long command line string. Incredibly useful. If you want to say somebody's trying to demonstrate something to you, uh, say a benchmark or something, you can just log into the same server, attach to the same screen session, and watch all of their keystrokes, watch all of the, you know, all of the standard out. It's a very useful tool for remote teams, uh, especially if you want to do some pair programming. Uh, you could have, again, you can share as many panes or as windows as you like, and they resize wonderfully. It's all very, very, all very useful. So you, I think you mentioned on Twitter that you were using Tmux with something else and some other tool to 
do, or am I just remembering wrong? Something was it like a multi SSH thing or? Yeah, so that was so that was the uh, so I was, I was referring to the synchronized panes feature, which huh? uh, so I used to use. Uh, I, I'm a big proponent of, or at least in the past, of cluster SSH. That it just allows you to spin up, you know, several shells to similar servers. Uh, the problem with that is if your connection dies, you lose your connection on all of these. Whereas with Tmux, I can log into one remote server start, you know, five sessions to other servers, and then if it dies, I just have to log back into that one server and resume my session, and it's, all the data's there. Um, mm. So I was working on a, on a cluster of, you know, like five or six machines. That way I could start a, you know, start a benchmark or start a, any kind of long-running process and just go back to it later. You can also name your windows and sessions so that, you know, I have a a pretty good description of what I was doing. So I'll be like, this is the benchmark session. And, you know, this is this session that I'm doing this other thing in. It just makes it very easy to resume work, especially if you have spotty internet. And I noticed it's actually part of the OpenBSD project. So we all know, I, I think in the past, Screen has had a couple of security exploits. I think around uh, their, where they um, created pipes for sharing the terminals and stuff. So I'm assuming this has the same sort of OpenBSD security paranoia uh, yeah. in terms of its development. Yeah, and that's and that's part of the, you know, they a lot of these people, you know, we're not trying to, like, say Screen is bad or terrible, but Screen has, has been unloved for some time, and so they've kind of, they decided to take all of the goodness that Screen had and just, you know, revamp it all for a little bit more modern usage. Have, uh, have you super happy with it. Yeah, uh, Yusuf uh, and Sasha, have you guys heard of Tmux? Yeah, I've, I've, I've done some stuff with Tmux. Um, not in the sort of professional sense, but uh, I was taking a grad class and um, did some pair, pro, uh, pair programming, so it's kind of handy. Uh, actually reminds me of an old um, chat tool called Ytalk. Uh, <laughs> back in the day, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but anyhow, it uh, had a kind of a neat feature where you could uh, escape out of the chat session into a shell and whatever shows up on your screen would show up for anybody else who's in the um, chat session. So it's kind of a, I think it's a great tool for pair programming and even debug sessions on like, if you have developers that don't have access to production, you can kind of, you know, show them what's going on, that type of thing. I do, uh, I do remember Ytalk, so you're also dating me as well. Mm. I do not remember Ytalk, so I'm probably dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, I, I'm actually, uh, as you were talking, I was reading through the some of the examples uh, on their website. They have examples of stuff you can use. But it's interesting to me that this tool seems to focus on use cases that actually didn't matter for screen. So one of them being terminals of weird sizes, right? So now we have huge monitors, and we can make the terminal windows really big, and they're not the standard 80 by 25 terminals. <laughs> Right. So, so you'd want to you want to tie all windows and stuff in there where you know that's not even a use case screen you even ever thought of. Uh, you mentioned uh, pair programming, uh, which is again something screen can sort of do, but it's not really a use case. It was kind of a use case after the thought. So it's interesting to see tools like this sort of evolve from just different different use cases. That uh, well, I think one of the totally one of the new. big things is they got around you know screen they they want to do support for UTFA and two fifty six color now. Back, you know, when screen was around, it wasn't really a big deal. But now it's, you know, people want to see, you know, they want to run HTOP or whatever and get all the nice pretty colors and things like right. that. So it was just, it was, it, you're right, as you, it evolved, people were trying to use screen for some of these things. And, you know, not to, not to say screen's bad, but Tmux is evolved out of those, out of the, the, the kind of, like, use cases that people were using screen for. And it just wasn't, it wasn't quite adequate for all, all those uses. Well, I will be uh, installing it this evening on uh, some of my machines. I'll give it a try. Looking forward to it. Thanks for that, Seth. No problem. So uh, it is. Uh, somebody pointed out the other day they didn't know. I, we ma- we make reference to uh, the show notes kind of throughout the show, but uh, I we do show notes for every show, and they're time indexed. So you can kind of skim if you're in a hurry, skim through the show notes. Uh, and if we looks like we talk about something interesting, you can uh, fast forward right to that part of the podcast. And we do that for every episode. So, and I spend a lot of time on it. So uh, I was surprised people didn't know that, but that's something we do for every episode. And you should look into that if you're looking for anything we've talked about, link to Tmux or, or uh, any of the other things we've talked about uh, on any of the episodes. Um, and they're on our website at uh, theshipshow.com. I mentioned that we were going to do DevOps Dear Abby. Lamentably, nobody tweeted with any questions for us to discuss. So we'll mention that again. You can do the hashtag DevOps Dear Abby. Uh, send us a question for discussion. Uh, it could be 
a philosophical question or a, a tooling question or anything in between. Bonus um, points for limericks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On in 140 characters. That's right. <laughs> Bonus uh, points for haiku. Yeah, yeah. So uh, apparently the game is tied up, and I'm biting my nails from San Francisco. This is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Austin, this is Seth signing off. Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.